It was a clear morning, a Tuesday morning. I was sitting in my very tiny apartment in Upper Manhattan, 125th Street, and I was checking my emails. It was in the morning, and I got an email from my sister in Belgium, and she told me, bro, get out of Manhattan. The whole island is burning. And I was just really, you know, baffled because I was, I mean, it was a very clear and calm day. And so I said, yeah, okay, what's going on? And I did go to the lobby in the apartment building and they did say there's something going on downtown. I don't know what it is. There's something going on downtown. And I went up to the rooftop, the terrace at the apartment building. And so we were 125th Street. So it was about six kilometers straight from what came to be Ground Zero. And I still remember this site, one of the towers burning. And we thought, wow, what an accident, of course, like everyone else. And um, I think we're 10, 15 students up there. And then we were standing there and we saw the second plane crash into the building. And I still remember this feeling of like feeling paralyzed and this eerie feeling about what what is actually going on here. Imagine finding yourself on the inland ice in Greenland at an outpost 86 degrees north and about 500 kilometers east of Tule Air Base. This is one of the absolute most isolated communities on Earth. It's completely inaccessible. And you are here to follow and study the everyday life of the 36 inhabitants at the remote camp. Most of them scientists. But not just any scientists. It's researchers associated with the North Greenland Emian Ice Drilling Project, aka the Neem Project. The Neem Project is an international ice core research project aimed at retrieving an ice core spanning back through the previous interglacial period, also known as the Eemian. The Eemian was about 5 degrees warmer than today, which means that reconstructing this climatic period holds a tremendous significance for science-based action in a future overshadowed by global warming. At this time of year, the sun never sets over the camp. It only moves laterally along the horizon. But most of the time, the weather is completely overcast with a dim and diffused light, often with ground fog. So, even though it may be interesting to follow the scientists for a while, why would you travel to one of the darkest and most godforsaken places on Earth? Well, because you're always drawn to the inaccessible. Because that means you can discover new knowledge. So, could you imagine that? I was intrigued. Though, I prefer sunlight during the daytime and my warm bed at night. But some people are just curious to the extent that they never hesitate when new adventures come knocking. My name is Casper Christensen, and this is a CBS Wire podcast series we call Outside the Box. 
It's a series where we meet some of the most colorful people at CBS, who with their stories and personalities make the university a happy and diverse place to be. And now, let's give a warm welcome to one of our widely traveled anthropologists at CBS. Here's Martin Skudstrup. best trade is to have this radical openness, which is, I think, in some ways impossible. But I mean, it's an ideal that we strive towards, you know, meeting the world without any baggage, any preconceived ideas, notions, prejudices about the world as it is or how it could be, but trying to take it in in its like radical incommensurability and Radical otherness. I think it's an impossible ideal, but we can. We just have to strive for it. So I think that's within the discipline. That's the best trait to have this radical openness. And um, I've tried throughout my career to stay as open as possible, which is difficult in academia because how you get renown and fame is about being an expert, being you know, knowing a lot about very, very little. So that works counter to having this radical openness. Um, worst uh, trade is uh, my serendipity. So this idea that I have to know everything about a theme or a subject, a topic, before I can actually write about it. Mm. This idea about state of the art, that you have to be on top of what is currently known about anything before you can actually intervene and write about it. So I'm very meticulous mm. in my approach to things, and that's a handicap. Mm. So you're a very thorough and, and perfectionist kind of person. Yes, my perfectionist is 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 a uh, yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so Martin Skolstrup, what fuels your motivation? Right. I mean, I think it's a very difficult question because. I think we can't really be aware of all our different drives. And I'm not sure what actually drives me, but I can tell you what I'm drawn to. And what I'm drawn to is to stand on the edge of something that we're not sure we know. And having this feeling about there is actually something to find out. I remember in during my studies at University of Copenhagen in, in the 90s, late 90s, there was this feeling about Everything had been studied and understood, and there was not much more to do than reflect. And I still remember I was working at the National Museum, and we had this very concrete objects uh, where you had a, a very clear description. It was some of the most fascinating I thought found during my studies was when coming across, you know, a spider hat from Iran Jaya, or some obscure little thing from across the world, and actually coming to see that there was very little known about it, both how it came to Copenhagen, to the National Museum, how was it used today, and I mean, it actually, there was a lot of different enigmas. So so my understanding is, I mean, that's really what, what I'm drawn to, when when there is something which we don't really know. Um, I guess that's, you know, why I'm... <laughs> A scientist. Mm. Um, so, so I'm drawn to those things. Yeah. Mm. 
what initially sparked your interest in academia and especially anthropology? I'm not sure, actually. I mean, I as a you know, when I was in high school in gymnasium, I wanted to be a lawyer, a defense lawyer, and I guess it was my early experiences. I mean, my my uncle was working for international labor organization, and we joined him in Malawi in in Southern Africa for um, a whole summer. So he taught me a lot, and that experience uh, in Malawi taught me a lot about. Again, this may be standing on the edge of something which is calling you or which you find interesting and want to know more about but can't really access. I think maybe that ultimately drew me towards anthropology. Mm. I think also maybe, I mean, anthropology, it's kind of a like boundless field. You know, you can study anything basically as long as you do it with an anthropological approach. Anything is up for grabs and... I guess this limitlessness is something which appeals to me. Mm. Have you always had an explorer in you? or? Um, I don't think so, no. I think maybe I've always felt like an outsider. And and I think that's a feeling many anthropologists have. You know, it's 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 almost a must when you do field work. You, you have to feel as an outsider. So when you do field work, you always embed it in a culture where you're trying to understand what's going on and you also have to reflect so you're always outside. So this emic ethic, this inside outside is is very much tied to the discipline. So I think it's much more this feeling about uh, being an outsider. I I've always felt that being an outsider, I guess. So that's a defining experience. So so I would say no, I haven't actually never felt as an explorer in the romantic sense. Mm. But my mother is Swedish, and I was born in Sweden, and my my father's Danish, and I grew up in Denmark. Mm. They're very similar cultures, but I'm always straddling. We've always been very attached to Sweden, and so so being this, you know, having kind of like two homes, and 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 what is taken for granted in two different cultures, which are very similar, I think has always given me this perspective of being. So I mean, I could always imagine like Phantom being an outsider. Mm. And and I think that's helpful when you are an anthropologist because you have to be inside and outside at the same time. You have been to very many uh, countries conducting field work during your career. And among other countries, you have been in Gabon, you have been in Greenland and Ghana. Which place has made the biggest impression on you and why? That's a tough question. Um, (laughs) When I was doing this field collection for the National Museum, it was early in my career. I mean, I think that would fit the romantic classic idea of the explorer. You know, when we went to Equatorial Guinea, that's a place very few have been. It was difficult, very difficult to enter. Foreigners thought we were diamond smugglers or... And I've I've encountered villages which have received visitors, if ever. I mean, very, very rarely. And I still remember Mongomo, which was very much remotely in the heart of the jungle, so to speak. It's just in the foot of the Crystal Mountains in Equatorial Guinea. And we were driving uh, in this, you know, 50-year-old uh, Land Rover. 
suddenly it was paved road and like a futuristic uh, architectural landscape. It looked like uh, Brasilia, you know, uh, the capital in, in Brazil. And I said, what's going on here? And, and then the driver said, yeah, it's the president's home, Ville Natal, so his, the village where he was born. So it had its own power generators to illuminate the city, and it was modern architecture. And still it was like it was being embedded by the forest. Um, but, I mean, some of these places have been, yeah, something out of the ordinary. But I think, I mean, in terms of fear work, I mean, I still think the Neem camp in Greenland was something which really was exciting. 36 researchers from 14 different nations united in a quest to solve the enigma of global warming, trying to really profile a window of what the world looked like when we had a five degree warmer temperature scenario. And feeling that excitement and, yeah, uh, quest for actually finding out and standing on the side, you know, what we know and what we don't know. I mean, that very border between those two states was really exhilarating. So more than exciting. And the whole, you know, the living conditions up there and so on. I think that was... That was some of the most signatory moments in my fieldwork career. I'm sitting here thinking you've experienced so much, been so many places. Have you ever been in dangerous situations? Yeah, I think, I mean, my first uh, field experience in Gabon, in Lambarene, where I was in this village called Aduma, there was this fetish with nails were put under my bed. They were put glass in my food, which was hidden. And uh, I, I found myself exposed to sor- sorcery. And um, people were whispering something at night through the window. Vous avez peur, vous avez peur. Le blanc, le blanc, vous avez peur. You should be afraid, uh, white man. You should be afraid, white man. And and so I, I I still feel that was slightly discomforting mm-hmm. uh, that 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 feel experiences yeah. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial. Then aircraft. of course it dawned like just on everybody else that there was something bigger going on, and we tried to go to the news and then of course we learned about Pennsylvania and then later DC and suddenly America was under attack and that very week was very very special to us because I remember they asked for blood donations they asked for torches carpets and volunteer work and we went down there it was exactly one week after it happened so the following Tuesday we had blankets, we had torches, we had cash. And I still remember the fire guy, uh, he just, he took those things and then he said, and I said, we, can we volunteer or help out anyway? And it was just like, no, there's nothing more you can do. 
we grateful for your, your donation. And then, you know, the very reality of being there, because we were living in this media universe uh, where even though we were, you know, so close to the actual happening, all the information was by the media. But there, there was this very special smell. And there were those small printed posters where it said body parts and then, you know, pictures of intimate body parts. And then if you see this, please get in touch. You've been in Southeast Asia studying tea, as well as you have been in East Africa to study palm oil. Um, why those two areas? Why tea and palm oil? Well, I, again, I think it's partly coincidental and maybe has to do with, you know, what we touched on in the beginning about my drives. Um, but it began with tea. And the reason I came upon tea was simply that my my earlier, my, my second postdoc project was on the water towers in Kenya. So I was interested in this idea about water towers. And the idea was that there's five mountains, five elevations, if you will, in Kenya. And uh, they're trying to conserve the forest, the trees. Mm. And the idea is, if you, if you are in Kenya, you can see that they're always in mist, so it's it's very tangible when you're there. You can see, oh, it's so misty and it's so humid and there's so much yeah, humidity in the air that you have the idea, yes, of course, that creates rain. So the very idea is that it's the elevated forest cover which drives the rainmaking. And so they're trying to conserve the forest to preserve the rainfall. And I was studying this notion about water towers, mm. and I found out that, that, that there is this strange coincidence, which nobody talked about, that on top of these mountains, you always find tea. So there was a different story, a backstory or a hidden story, which had to, to be that they also, of course, tea can only grow in high elevations, but that they actually wanted to protect the tea plantations. And so this project about the water towers led to my interest in tea, which then became my next project, which was then on the sustainability of tea. And the reason why that then led to palm oil was simply because that I was recruited to a much larger research project in Wachenen in, in the Netherlands, and, and they were having a big project comparing different commodities, timber, tuna, and palm oil. And they recruited me, because I worked on tea, to do the palm oil. So, but it is interesting to compare. And, you know, and what strikes me is that the story of, of palm oil, it's like the annals of destruction. Mm. It's seen as the evil crop, which you know, <laughs> makes people fat, because it's like in 50% of everything we eat, and it's not considered a very healthy diet. But it's also uh, a threat to the rainforest and and primary forest. Whereas tea, and I think tea is actually has this, a lot of the same traits, but that's seen as a very benevolent crop and greenish and lush and almost like preserveable or con conserves the 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 forest. 
But there's the same. I mean, it has very much the same traits as palm oil. So, uh, so I think it's interesting to have this contrast between what in the you know, popular imagination is the evil and the benevolent crop, mm. but actually studying how, how, how they grow and how they are perceived in specific context is something which I think is, is fascinating. As a man who has been many places around the world, uh, where do you go when you want to travel in your spare time? <laughs> Yes, I, I I very much like Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I uh, I mean, I think there is uh, fantastic places in Denmark which I really like. So vacation for me is is yeah, uh, it's it's very much Sweden or or Denmark. So very you know close, nearby places is. Um, is yeah, where I I prefer to go. <laughs> yeah, your two homes, you could say. Yes. Yeah. There was this very special smell, and there were those small printed posters where it said body parts, and then you know pictures of intimate body parts, and then if you see this, please get in touch. So it was like intimate piercings and tattoos, and then it really became very real to me in a like a hyper real way, and I think it was for me a, a formative moment in my anthropological education to have this sensorial uh, be exposed and learn by the senses, smell and sight, and then at the same time standing in this global mediascape where you couldn't really connect or align the news feed with your actual experiences. And it's been a very important lesson for me as an anthropologist that You just have to be embedded somewhere and pick up, you know, the very grounded feeling of of being embedded it with the smells and what, what comes with it to actually to actually get a feel for a place and, and what goes on there and what really matters to people. So that was a formative experience for me as, as an anthropologist. From all the places you've been and, and all the empirical research you've done, um, what have been the most important learning of all? And I know that's a very tough question. Well, I think it's the continued relevance of anthropology mm. that in a world which is ever more connected and ever more virtual, I think it still makes sense to go places and explore things from a bottom-up perspective. You know, so with the Pomor research, one of the key questions was on transparency. And it's a very like media and uh, media saturated field where the idea is if we can just do blockchain and very advanced digital platforms, we can almost like see the Pomor tree and we can see, you know, where the where the stuff comes from. But when you actually go there and you can see the limits of digital technologies and the um, what they obscure and what they do not make visible. And so, for instance, doing this research on palm oil, you know, it became apparent that for the farmer in Sumatra, in Indonesia, for them, these digital technologies is a kind of like Orwellian big brother. 
which for them is intimidating and a burden and it's something that they really don't want to disclose because it goes to the titling of land and whether they have right to their land or not. So all kind of like for us collateral concerns, but for them concerns which are at the heart of the matter, then comes into play. And you can't really understand these micropolitics if you don't go there and talk to people and try to understand how they navigate palm oil and palm oil fields. Um, so I think it's the continued relevance of, of anthropology. Can you reveal uh, where you're going the next time, uh, which destination to investigate Well, I'm not quite done with Kenya yet. I'm I'm working with the tea auction in Mombasa, and there's still a lot of riddles and enigmas to figure out. Mm. Basic questions like the price of tea, the relationship between quality and price. So my next trip is to Mombasa in Kenya and trying to figure out the yeah these questions around my current project on tea so um so that's next yeah if i meet you in say 10 years from now who do you think you'll be and and where in the world will you be by that time well i hope to be here um i think there's so much to accomplish here at cbs for anthropology in 10 years i mean there's I see it very much as there are a lot of tasks which I need to accomplish, <laughs> which I haven't accomplished. A lot of that is writing. So I'm looking a lot backwards when you ask me about my future. Mm. I'm looking a lot backwards to find the time and space to put a lot of my experiences to print and, and write about them. That's something. Then I'd like to try and reach bigger audiences than you normally do within academia. There's a lot of talk about impact. Uh, and normally when we talk impact, we talk about citations. But for me, real impact is really much about the students and the um, impression we make on our students. But also, I'd like to use other media than writing. I'd like to make an exhibition. I'd like to maybe make a documentary movie or documentary film. Um, so I'd like to challenge myself. You know, of course, I can't do that alone. I have to work with people which are much more talented uh, than, than I am. But I'd like to try and, and render experiences and field work in, in different ways than just writing. Hmm. So that's some of my ambitions for the next 10 years. And then maybe it's trying to make anthropology uh, more relevant for business and try and convey the insights you have and the relevance for business. That's mm. something I hope I can do here at CBS. Um, yeah, Martin so thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with me today. You're so welcome. My pleasure. 
that's it for this episode of Outside the Box by CBS Wire about Martin Skrudstrup, the well-traveled anthropologist at CBS who loves to explore the cutting edge of new knowledge. I hope you found his stories as interesting as I did when I met him. Please tell all your colleagues, co-students and friends at CBS about our podcast. And be sure to listen again next time when you'll meet a new equally eccentric and interesting person from CBS. My name is Casper Christensen. Adieu.